Jesus, lift up Jesus, sing the name that overcomes. Savior, he has freed us. Lift up Jesus, lift him up. Let's stand this morning and sing that out to our God. something about him fills my heart with joy there's just something about his name only one that I worship only one I adore only one my heart will praise there's just something about his name Jesus lift up Jesus Say, he 
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the North Canton Chapel. It's good to be with you this morning. We invite you to continue to sing with us as we celebrate our God who has overcome sin and death and made a way for us to have new life in him. Let's continue to praise him this morning. Now the darkness fades into new beginnings as we lift our eyes to a hope beyond. All creation waits with an expectation to declare the reign of the Lord our God. We will not be moved when the earth gives way. There's an empty grave For the risen one is overcome Now the silence breaks At the name of Jesus As the heavens cry, let the earth respond All creation shouts With the voice of triumph To declare the reign of the Lord our God We will not be moved when the earth gives way For the risen one is overcome And for every fair there's an empty grave For the risen one is overcome As we sing this together declare the reign and the rule of the Lord our God, that he has overcome the world. Let's sing this out. He shall reign forever, strongholds now, surrender for the Lord our God has overcome. And who can be against us? Jesus, our defender, he is Lord. this morning for what he has done for us. 
serve a good and a great God, do we not? You know, one of the good things and really the most beautiful things about music in church throughout time has been that often music is used to teach and to reinforce theology, to teach us these truths about who God is and to break them down into these really simple melodies and phrases that help drive that truth home. And this morning, we're gonna sing a song together that helps do just that. It teaches us the truth of God's word about what we believe about who he is, what he has done for us, and then our role in our faith and the church. And so I'm gonna sing it once, and I'm gonna invite you to sing it with me. Can we do that this morning? By your word alone, by your grace alone, found in faith alone in Jesus Christ alone sing that with me by your word alone by your grace alone I'm found in faith alone in Jesus Christ alone these are these truths that we sing about our God, about his work in our lives. Let's be reminded of these things and take them to heart this morning by your word. By your word alone, by your grace alone, found in faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by your word. You 
your grace alone. I'm found in faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. By your word. By your word alone. By your grace. because of you. Jesus, for who you are, you are worthy. You're worth all of our praise and all of our worship this morning. We thank you for your incredible love for us. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for singing to him this morning. Please have a seat and turn your attention to the screens. Sunday morning, and the boy told his mom, he said, that's it, I'm not going to church. Mom says, yes, you are. He says, no, I'm not. He says, I don't like them. They don't like me. Every time I go, I feel guilty. I'm done. I'm out. And the mom says, you are going to church. I'm going to give you two reasons why. The boy says, okay. She says, reason number one, you're 42 years old. Reason number two, <laughs> you're the pastor. Uh, it's a good joke, but it sometimes bears out in reality a little bit, right? What do you do when this whole following Jesus thing is suddenly harder than you thought it would be? What do you do when the life that you thought Jesus was going to give you is not the life that you have? Those green pastures and quiet waters seem like a distant memory, and that easy yoke and light burden are nowhere to be found. That's when the really tough questions start, right? Like, can my faith really stand up to the growing press of the world around it? Am I strong enough to make it, or will I shrivel up and implode? A probably most honest and most dangerous question of all, certainly the most painful, is this whole following Jesus thing worth it? Those questions were certainly on the minds of the disciples as they heard Jesus talk after dinner that night. And I think that if we have the courage to be honest, they might be on our minds from time to time also. So I'm 38. Uh, church has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. 
from my mom's insistence that I tuck in my shirt as an obstinate eight-year-old boy, hard to believe, I know, to attending student events in high school for one reason only, and I will not mention her name. But here's what I'm noticing, and you may be noticing the same thing. Things are shifting, aren't they? I think we're standing on the edge of profound cultural shifts in the landscape of the American church. And I believe that Jesus' words at the end of John 15 will become more real and more rich with each passing month. Because like the disciples, you and I are faced with a choice, a tough choice. Will we lean in? Or will we shrink back? And it's to that choice that I want to turn our attention this morning. If you want John 15, you can turn there in your Bible or flip there on your phone. Or if you'd like to follow along on the screens behind me, that'd be great. John 15, we're going to take a look starting in verse 18. Here's what Jesus has to say to his friends. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray together. God, I know that these words are hard words. I know they're hard to hear now, and I know they were hard to hear when your son said them for the first time. So God, in our time together now, would you open our hearts to hear from you? Whatever I have to say is powerless without you. And so would you, by the agency of the same spirit that you talk about in this text, would you encourage our hearts and equip us to do everything you've called us to do? In Jesus' name, amen. So these last two weeks, we've been doing a deep dive. We've been peering into John 15. We've taken a look at three relationships that Jesus talks about. He talks about the disciples' relationship to him, and then he talks about the disciples' relationship to each other. And then lastly, today, he's going to talk about the disciples' relationship to the world. Jesus uses these words spoken 12 hours before his own death by crucifixion at the hands of hateful men to gently lift the veil for the disciples, to let them know that should they choose to lean in, they can expect things to get tougher, not easier. But I believe that his word for us today is very similar to that. 
The harder we lean into Jesus, the stronger we will find him to be. So as we explore that truth, I think this text gives us three aspects of persecution that we need to understand if we are going to lean into Jesus. So here we go. First aspect of persecution we need to understand is the reality of persecution. The reality. Take a look back in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. It's easy to imagine, isn't it? I mean, you can almost hear it. As the disciples shuffle out of the upper room that night, down the darkening Jerusalem streets, Jesus' words soften into a whisper. He's nearer the cross now, and although the disciples are not 100% clued in into what's about to happen, there are dark clouds starting to form on the horizons of their imaginations. Like, if the world hates us, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why would... <laughs> Jesus' voice shifts from theological, that's verses 1 through 11, to encouraging, that's verses 12 through 17, and now here it's hushed, cautious, and prophetic. So in verse 18, when Jesus says, if, he really means when. He's looking into the not-so-distant future where the disciples' relationship to the world will be forever changed. But we need to get a handle on what he means by the world, Right? In verse 19, John, John records that Jesus repeats the word world five times in a single verse. It's like that squeaky wheel on the front of your shopping cart. Every time it goes around, it gets a little bit more painful. What's he mean by the world? Does he mean that this guy who bags our groceries is somehow hateful toward me? That my neighbor hates me? What does he mean by this? So Help me out on this. In John's gospel, Jesus uses the world a lot. He uses that phrase. So most famously, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? Then he calls his disciples later and he says, you guys, you are the light of the world. And then he says in a couple of chapters, he's going to say, take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's put all this together. Jesus is saying that God loves the world. God is inclined to the world. He wants to reclaim the world, but sadly the world is somehow set against him. The word hate here is really strong, isn't it? When you read that. It's even more striking when compared to the context, because right before there, Jesus just got done saying, love each other, love each other. And he concludes that first section where he says, this is my command that you what? You love each other. That was last week. The disciples should be known by their love, and the world is known by its hate. Such a striking contrast, isn't it? And their only consolation comes from verse 20, where Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. What's he saying? Jesus can't promise them anything that he did not enjoy himself. This means rejection persecution. So a quick summary of this first point of persecution, the reality of persecution, is that when you are truly living as a disciple of Jesus, you can expect a reaction. 
We'll get to that in a minute. So during my freshman year at college, I slept on the top bunk. Any top bunk dwellers here? Anybody? Right? So being a top bunk dweller brings its own set of challenges, not least of all the ceiling that is 18 inches from your face. And I remember laying there and thinking, well, I've got a plan for this ceiling. So anytime I, I ran across a cool Bible verse that I hadn't read before or I found a quote that I really liked or like something that like a theology professor had said and I had written down, I wrote it down on a piece of paper, I ripped it out, and I taped it to my ceiling. And so I'm not sure when I became a nerd, but it was like somewhere around this time, okay? So I would lay awake at night like reading these things on my ceiling, all these like great theology notes and quotes from guys who had been dead for like 400 years, but it was really nourishing to me. And I'm like, yes, this is perfect. One of those things was a quote from Pilgrim's Progress, this book that I hadn't read up until this point. And I want to read this, this point to you because it was stuck on my ceiling, and it so closely characterized and mirrored my own experience that it was just bound for the ceiling, like right above my face. Here's what he says. I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now, he had not run far from his own door when others, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, life, 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 eternal life. The neighbors also came out to see him run, and as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and some cried after him to return. But the man said, neighbors, why have you come? And they said, to persuade you to come back with us. But he said, that can by no means be. And those were the words. That's what Jesus is describing here. The world won't understand why you run to Jesus, but run anyway. You can't live like you used to live because you are not who you used to be. You belong to him. When you are living as a disciple of Jesus, you can expect a reaction. Here's the deal. When you recognize Jesus and you submit your life to him, you are no longer a part of the world in the way that you once were. And that sparks something. For some people, it's curiosity. For some people, it's frustration. For some people, it's anger. And we'll get to why in a minute. But for right now, it's important to say that for those who genuinely follow Jesus, the message seems to be, I shouldn't be surprised at the reality of persecution in my life. I should be surprised at the absence of persecution in my life. So I'm going to stop here for a second and take a little bit of a rabbit trail because I think it's important to define what persecution isn't. Reason being is I think a lot of times we can sound the alarm bells too early thinking that we're being persecuted when in fact something else is happening. So a few things that persecution is not. First off, persecution isn't the same thing as unpopularity. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Micah share that Christianity is on the decline in the U.S. as much as 8% in recent years while it's on the rise globally. The United States, get this, is now the largest receiving country of missionaries in the world. No other country receives more missionaries than we do. That ought to sober us a bit. It's no longer popular to be a Christian in the U.S. This is not a cultural thing anymore. This isn't cute. So what do we do with that? Dig deeper. When we are secure in our identity in Christ, both as individuals with Jesus and as a church under Jesus, we will be free from the burden of popularity. Persecution is not the same as unpopularity. Second thing, persecution is not the lack of external support for the church. It's not the lack of external support for the church. 
Some people grieve when like the Ten Commandments are taken down from a courthouse wall. Some people grieve when a law gets passed that doesn't represent the Bible. Some people grieve when a leader is elected or somebody is appointed who we don't agree with. And I scratch my head and I go, guys, do you realize what the early church was about? <laughs> they didn't have any of those things either and they grew. So what does that tell me? What's the point? The church is at its best when the church is countercultural. When we look to anything other than Jesus for protection, provision, or direction, we will lose. Jesus is not interested in transforming empires. He is interested in transforming hearts. He is not interested in creating some charming cultural institution on the corner of every town in America with a little white steeple on top. He's interested about a revolutionary movement of people whose hearts are on fire for him. Third thing persecution is not. Persecution is not a poor response to poorer evangelistic methods. Here's what I mean. So when Mandy and I were church planners in Colorado um, 15 years ago or so, we, we went to a training. It was like a half-day training about how to share the gospel with complete strangers. I'm going, okay, well, this will be interesting. And so during that day, we were trained on how to knock on doors, hand out a piece of literature, and then pray with anybody who wanted to receive Jesus. And I'm like, ah. Like, maybe that's cool for some people, but, like, that's just not my thing. And so I spent the afternoon in a park talking with people. Why? Here's the reason. Because if we really believe that we care about the people around us, we need to care how they hear what we are saying. This is a deep missiological principle, okay? If you're on my front porch with a presentation of information, you better be a Girl Scout with a box of Thin Mints. <laughs> All right? Because that's who I want on my front porch. Nobody, why do we do this? Here's the push, right? The gospel is not a presentation of information. It's an introduction to a person. And we've got to get back to that. I'm introducing Jesus to somebody. And literature may help, but that's not what I lead with. That's not what I do. Getting a door slammed in my face is not persecution. That just may mean I'm just being a bad missionary. If you want to share Jesus with someone, tell them what he's doing in your life, how he's changing you, and why he wants to do the same thing for them. Fourth thing. Persecution is not being surrounded by lostness. We look around in our world, and our world is hurting, right? You don't have to watch the news for two seconds. I spent this week with a family whose daughter was killed in domestic violence. What do you do with that? You look around and go, man, I wish it was easier to be a Christian, right? Oh, this pain, I can't even take it anymore. And I'm with you for what it's worth. Like my idea of heaven is a log cabin deep in the woods next to a trout stream that nobody else knows about and no mosquitoes. That's my idea. But here's the deal. That's not the world that I live in and that's not the life I've been called to. I love that idea. I really do. Just going, God, I just want to like stick my head in the sand and ostrich this sucker for a little while because I can't stand the pain anymore, right? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't leave that option on the table for us. Even, this is the craziest thing about God. Even though the world is set against him, he loves the world and he put the church in the world so that we could reach the world. We have to get around lostness. To be a Christian in 2019 means to be maligned, misunderstood, hurt by lostness, and choose to love anyway. So that's the first aspect of persecution we need to get our heads around is the reality of persecution. It's coming, it's not going to be fun, but the harder you lean on Jesus, the stronger you find him to be. 
The second aspect we need to understand about persecution is the reason for persecution. The reason for persecution. There are actually two. Take a look in verse 21. Here's what Jesus says. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come to them and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done all the works among them that nobody else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Did you see the first reason right there in verse 21? It leaps off the page. The world rejects the Son because they don't know the Father. The world does not recognize God on God's terms. So if you're writing this down, write down the word ignorance. That's a super strong word, but that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's like, you just don't know what you don't know. If we could skip over to Paul's letter to Romans chapter 1, he talks about the same thing. He says, the wrath of God is being poured out against the unrighteousness of the world and wicked men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What's he talking about? Same thing here. It's like holding a beach ball underwater. Like, I refuse to believe in a God that would dot, 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 dot. How could God be good and dot, dot, dot? So I'm holding this beach ball underwater. You ever look into a baby's eyes? You ever seen a sunset? You ever looked at a thunderclap? It takes work to suppress a belief in God. I'm just too lazy. I'd rather just bend the knee. It's like holding a beach ball underwater. Willful ignorance, just saying, I don't want to believe it. Then there's a second reason. This is in verse 23 and 24. He says, whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one had done, then they wouldn't be guilty of sin. So if you're calling this, if you're taking notes, call this one disbelief. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's setting up a trial against himself. And he says, look, all these people that saw me and, and for three years and now want to crucify me, he's like, they heard me teach on the hillside. Maybe they were standing on the edge of the crowds or hiding in the shadow of a tree, but they were there, they heard me. And then not only did they hear my words, they saw my works. Like, do you guys remember when we cut open a roof to heal a guy? I raised a dead guy and that's not enough for these people. And so what's Jesus saying? Is he saying by his word and by his works, he has done everything he needs. He's brought all the evidence he can to present himself as an all-sufficient Savior and Son of God. Here's what he wants you to hear. When the world persecutes you because of Jesus, they're not persecuting you. They're persecuting Christ in you. In preparation for the sermon, I read a book called Think It Not Strange. Navigating Trials in the New America. And I really recommend you check it out. Looks like that for those of you book people. As I read the book, I was struck by a story about a 43-year-old Nigerian believer called John Yakubu. And I want to read it to you only because I want you to pick up on the strain of persecution and hope and joy and mercy in the midst of it. Here's his story. John Yakubu was tortured by Boko Haram. And as a result, he and his family sought refuge in Cameroon. After he could no longer feed his family, he returned to his village in Nigeria to sell some of his animals. Upon reaching his village, Boko Haram militants captured him, demanded that he recant his faith in Christ, 
and convert or suffer the consequences. Brother John denied the offer to deny his master who had saved him. As a result, the terrorists tied him to a tree and cut his hands with large knives. After cutting his hands, they again demanded that he convert. John replied that he would not because the terrorists could only kill the body. In anger, the terrorists cut him on the head, back, and legs and left him to bleed to death. But in God's kindness, John was rescued and received careful medical attention. When interviewed, here's what he said. Now get this. I have forgiven the militants because they did not know what they were doing. Who's that sound like? Through his word in Matthew 10, 28, God gave John strength to endure suffering. Particularly, John received grace to endure torture through his knowledge that Christ's disciples must suffer. He remembered Christ's warning to his disciples that others would persecute them and that they should not fear. John knew that suffering would come and understood his role in the greater story that encompassed his life. Now sit for a minute. Jesus. 2,000 years earlier, there on the street with his disciples, in his sovereign omniscience, he could look 2,000 years in the future, and he knew John Yakubu. He knew what would happen because Jesus is God, and he's omniscient. He knew that suffering and persecution would be the legacy that connected his disciples who were standing there as his best friends right at his side on that Jerusalem night to a man in Nigeria in 2014. And he commissioned them anyway. He said, guys, they don't, they don't know me. And they don't know my father. They see what I do, and they write it off as magic. They see my words, and they hear me preach, and they say, it's just fluff. And so my followers and my friends, all of this will be your legacy. So here's the question, church. Are we so naive to think that there won't be a cost Are we so simple? In 350 years of very peaceful American Christianity, are we so naive to think that we are that different from our brothers and sisters around the world? So if the reasons for persecution are ignorance and unbelief, what does that mean for me? A little bit, and then we're going to move on to the next part of the text. What does this mean? First off, fight the right fight. Fight the right fight. There are endless things we can fight about, right? Like football season is just around the corner. And if you root for Michigan, you probably don't know Jesus. But here's the deal. <clears throat> Slide it in there. Okay. I'm going to make sure you're awake. Here's the thing, though. We could fight about a billion things. There was this stat recently, and I don't remember the exact percentage, but something like 70% of American evangelicals don't want to worship with somebody who doesn't share their political beliefs. That is sick. Because it says we are focusing on the wrong stuff. It could be that one of the greatest gifts of persecution for the church is clarity. Because all of a sudden, one thing matters, Jesus and Jesus alone. One of the most indicting things about the American church could be that we are so willing to give ourselves over to small-minded, short-sighted trivialities. Fight the right fight. Two, commit yourself to mercy. 
Be merciful now. Learn how to forgive somebody now. Why? I really believe that maybe one of the reasons that God hasn't brought profound sanctifying suffering to my life is because I couldn't handle it. If I can't forgive somebody for a snide remark, how am I going to forgive somebody when it really hurts? So be merciful now. Learn forgiveness now. Another thing, live the word. Live the word. Don't let the only time you open this be on Sunday. Please, God, don't let this happen to us. If God never brought persecution in my life, that would be great. But if we're not formed by the word when the pressure's off, do we think we're going to be formed by the word when the pressure is on? Mandy and I talked about this recently. Like, I'm a pastor, guys, and there's several pastors in the room. It is not entirely impossible that at one point in my life I'll be charged with a hate crime. Not because I legitimately hate anybody, but because my convictions are bound to the word of God and I cannot deviate from that. And so what happens when that, ha when that presses in? Do we lean in or do we shrink back? And so God's word seems to say the harder you lean on Jesus, the stronger you find him to be. Second aspect of persecution is the reason for the persecution. But before we move on, we need to stop a second. Let's remember where we are here. Jesus is just about to head to the cross. This is the last locker room pep talk before all of this goes down. These are the final moments with the men who have followed him through thick and thin, like seas being stilled at his voice, water to wine, dead men raised, women who were on the fringes of society brought in and given dignity. And as some of his last words before the final push, he says, oh, this whole discipleship thing, this is going to stink and break you. You got to wonder how they heard that, right? You had Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they're going, this this is why we left our dad's fishing business? Like, Jesus, we had job security, man. And now dad's over there on the lake all by himself. We, and there's Matthew, right? He's standing there and he's going, this is why I left the tax collecting booth? Jesus, I was a high roller, man. And this is what you're giving me instead of that? Are you serious? But then look at what he does. The third response, or the third aspect of understanding persecution is our response to persecution. Look in verse 26. Here's what he says. When the helper comes. Stop. Wait, what? Who? When the helper comes. I can't overstate how incredible this must have sounded to these guys. Fifteen minutes earlier, just as they were wrapping up dinner, Jesus had said, I will ask the Father, and the Father will send someone in my name called the helper and this helper will do two things. He will teach them everything you need to know, and he'll remind you of everything that I've already taught you. And now Jesus extends the doctrine of the Holy Spirit to say something that is so crucial to our understanding of persecution. What's the text say that the Holy Spirit is doing here? He will what? It's right there in the text. Bear witness about me. Now we've got to get theological here, okay? So please track with me. The Father loves the world, right? Not a trick question. The Father loves the world, right? Okay, but the world has rejected the Father and the Son, and so Jesus goes, okay, fine, I am sending the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't promise ease, he promises the Spirit. So sit on that truth for a second. Brandon Marshall, I don't save anybody. I don't draw anybody, I don't convict anybody, I don't bring anybody security. I'm just a man 
Why does Jesus start with the Spirit? Because the Spirit goes where I cannot go, and he does what I cannot do. Whenever a believer draws others to Christ, that's actually the work of the Spirit. Whenever you see someone convinced and convicted of their sin, that's the work of the Spirit. Whenever you see the shackles fall off their soul and they're free in Christ, that's the work of the Spirit. Whenever our own souls are encouraged by the finished work of Christ on our behalf, that's the Spirit. Joy in worship, devotion in the word, selflessness in service, all driven by the Holy Spirit. Well, who's the Spirit used? Okay, verse 27, here you go. And you also, oh, oh boy. I don't, I don't like that. I'm like, God, I, th- I thought you were kind of doing all the work here. I don't, I don't like that. What's Jesus doing? Jesus now loops in the disciples and therefore us into the picture. We don't get to prop our feet up and do nothing. We have a crucial part to play in this whole thing called the mission of God. Why is that important? Remember, this is in the the context of coming persecution. Here's the connection. The spirit-driven Christian who can worship and obey in the face of persecution is probably the greatest evidence for the work of Christ in the world. Or put it another way, the Christian who builds his life on his ability or only lives up to the edge of her strength but never crosses over, who consistently chooses comfort over risk is probably one of the greatest indictments against the power of the gospel. The world is watching to see if our lives can testify to something more than what we're capable of. If we forgive when it doesn't make sense, if we love when it's hard, if we serve when we don't feel like it, if our lives are marked by patience, Kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, that's unnatural. If our joy is deeper than our circumstances, here's what we need to see here. The forward movement of the gospel is a reciprocal relationship between the disciples and the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit's power, our witness is pointless. I want to tell you a story of a friend of mine called Tim. Tim and I went to elementary school together, Greentown. Nothing? There you go, Greentown. We played Little League together. I was catcher, and Tim was over at first base. Tim and I went through school together. He was here at North Canton Chapel during high school, played football at Hoover, graduated, went off to seminary in Colorado, and we've stayed in touch over the years. Tim and his wife and family live up in Westlake, where Tim is a leadership coach and a consultant. He's doing really well. Here's the remarkable thing about Tim. Tim starts every week the same way. I get this. Monday morning, he starts out with a single prayer. God, show me where you want me to have coffee today. So as he's getting ready, God will bring something to his mind, and he obeys. He says, okay, I'm going there. As he's pulling into the coffee shop, he says, God, show me who you want me to start a conversation with today. Make somebody stick out to me who might need something. And so after he gets all set up and it's not awkward, he goes over and sits down and has a conversation with somebody. And then as he's working there on his laptop, he says, okay, God, show me if there's anybody else in here who might need to hear from you today. Who can I be on mission to today in this place? Now, Tim is not independently wealthy. He's not a venture capitalist who can do nothing but sit around and drink coffee all day. But if you listen to him, he'll tell you the most amazing stories. Tim is just a normal guy with an abnormal life because he is simply more spirit-directed than most. And that sounds crazy. I get it. You're looking at me right now, I can tell, and I see in your eyes, you're like, you seriously want me to do that? (laughs) Here's the thing. That's not that dissimilar from the life of the early church. You've got Philip, right? 
Philip's just cruising along. There's a guy in a chariot. He introduces him to Jesus, and then boom, Philip's gone. You got Saul, literally knocked to the ground, and his life has changed forever, and Saul becomes Paul, and the church is never the same. Peter, simple fisherman Peter, who in Acts chapter 2 delivers an impromptu sermon that rivets 3,000 people, and the church begins to grow. When I read the New Testament, I don't get the impression that the spirit-driven life is the exception. I think it's the norm. A.W. Tozer would put it this way. The spirit of God hovers over our frontiers. How many of us get up every day and say, Holy Spirit, direct my life. Point me where you want me to go. Open my eyes for what you'd have me see. Give me the confidence and the courage to be who you need me to be. Why is that so hard for us? Maybe a couple reasons. Maybe because we're distracted, right? I feel that. Michael Frost would say it like this. He says, trying to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit for many Christians is like trying to hear the radio in a coffee shop. Our ears don't work like that. So when I get to that spot, here's what I ask myself. What do I need to stop doing so I can make space for what the Spirit might do? Stop watching so much TV, right? Sit in silence. Feast on the Word. Pray. Another reason this may be tough for us is maybe we're afraid of being perceived as self-righteous. I get this one, right? This is the who do you think you are to talk to me about Jesus and your truth and your way of thinking. I get that. I don't like that impression. Self-righteous Christians are about as useful to Jesus as a bag of hot air. So here's the gospel corrective. You are who you are because of Jesus, not because of you. If you're the hero in your own faith story, you need a new story. We should talk about Jesus less or talk about Jesus more and less about me. Another reason, maybe because we're just scared of where the Spirit might lead. I think this is common for most of us, because if I do that, God, where are you going to take me? What's this mean? It's like this wild goose chase of a life. But here's the thing, when I reach the end of my life, I don't want to be a Christian who didn't risk anything. We should not be afraid of persecution, but God make us terrified of a life half-lived. You see how all this folds back on leaning into Jesus? This whole idea of persecution and walking in step with the Spirit in your daily life, following Christ daily, it's all folding back into leaning really hard against Him. God has so designed the gospel message to be in the Spirit's power so He gets the glory, but we get to share in the joy because God is good. The harder we lean into Jesus, the stronger we find Him to be. So maybe you're here this morning and this idea of Jesus is new to you. I don't mean Jesus is new to you. You'd recognize this picture on a wall or a painting somewhere in a museum. But if somebody asked you, how is Jesus working in your life? It'd be like, a little blank on that one. So if that's you, I invite you. We've been doing a big push for this thing called Rooted. And I know it sounds like a commercial, but I'm going to tell you, the church exists for a reason. Because I believe that everybody deserves the opportunity to be connected to a community of loving Christ followers who are sold out for him. And so if you're not doing anything this fall and you want to jump off and you say, okay, I'm going to grab a hold of Jesus as tight as I can. I'm going to see what he wants to do with my life. I want to encourage you to check out this thing called Rooted. It's a 10-week experience. It's going to be really good. But even if you've already done that or if you're not ready to do that, here's my word to you. Don't ever sell Jesus short of what he's capable of doing in your life. Don't hold back. He's given you a life to live and to spend for his glory and for your joy. Don't waste it and hold back.
So as we've been wrapping up these series uh, these last three weeks, you know that sometimes it's easier to hear somebody tell their story rather than to listen to me flap my lips about it. And so I want to encourage you to listen to my friend Andrew as he tells his story. Now this is him going through Rooted, but beyond that, I want you to listen to how he fought for belief in his life and what Jesus did over the course of this Rooted experience in his life. So turn your attention to the screens. I grew up in a household where mom was a Catholic um, and dad was Protestant and uh, or non-denomination, whatever you want to call it. And uh, basically, as a Catholic growing up in that church, I did not have the relationship I felt like I do now with, with Jesus and with others of the faith. So this was really a, a reaffirmation of something that, that due to the mundane and monotony of our lives, I, I was able to refocus myself. And in the process, I was able to, to hear stories from other believers um, and their walk with Christ and create relationships with, with people within the church that um, I may have had conversations or, you know, a, a greeting with, but you actually got to get to know them on a personal um, as a non-believer, I think this is a great fundamental tool um, uh, as coming into the faith or someone that's just coming to the faith. Um, this is a great tool to get to know who Jesus is and, uh, and really what, what we as believers are. As we stand and as we sing this morning, remind ourselves of this truth about who Jesus is and the work that he has done. Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness watch and pray, find in me thine all in all, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spot. Paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. And when before the Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed in white as snow. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed in white as snow. Washed in white as snow, he washed in white as snow. Let's declare this together. I praise for the one who has done all for us. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners Christ died for us amen let's never become too far tethered from that truth that is our anchor that God is unmistakably holy and he is merciful and he is good and he loves you more than you're ever going to know it's a good truth so if you would I'm going to ask you just briefly take a seat. We're going to do a couple quick things. We have a commissioning we're going to do in a little bit. And so for those of you who know what that is, just take a second, I promise. A couple of things that I want to let you know about. We have something coming up next week called We Are NCC. And uh, what that is, in case you don't know, that is our opportunity once a year in the fall. We gather and we talk about all different ways we can celebrate, connect, and contribute to what God is doing here at the North Canton Chapel. Um, it's one service, and so I want to make sure that you know uh, we've been trying to message this a lot. Uh, please don't show up at the normal times uh, or else you're going to feel weird and I'm going to feel weird. So just save us all the weirdness and uh, take a look at all the details in your bulletin. Another thing I want to let you know about is if you do want to sign up for Rooted, if you do want to be connected, and you know right now you're like, hey, I'm in. Uh, these Rooted groups are going to start up September 15th, right around the corner. And uh, this is going to be 10 weeks uh, through this fall. I don't want you to miss it. Uh, if you have questions, you can go online and learn more. Or if you want to sign up, uh, you can head right out straight through these doors. Uh, look for the Rooted sign, and, and they'll be there to greet you. So what we want to do is, uh, you know, we take commissioning very seriously because we take mission very seriously. 
And so um, if you are a teacher, if you work in our public schools, private schools, if you are a homeschool parent, if you work in administration, or if you're anywhere connected to the schools, would you stand up, please, right in your seats. You're not going to come down here, don't worry. Uh, but if you would stand up where you are. Um, if you're anyway connected to the school systems around here, um, you homeschool your kids or in any way that you work around education. Um, also, if you are a student, I know we got some in here. If you are a student, would you guys stand to your feet? Uh, we have a lot of students. I love that. Look at that. That's so cool. Um, so here's the deal. You guys know this. Um, you're heading into a mission field, guys, uh, this year. I don't care what your school looks like or what the name of it is or what your job is or anything like that. You're heading into a mission field. And so we want to commission you in Jesus' name uh, because a lot of schools are starting this week. Sorry, students, you know it's happening. I can't delay that. But here's what we want to do. Um, where you are seated, if you would, just extend a hand to those that are around you, okay? Just reach out your hand, and we're going to commission them in the name of Jesus as they go forward this year. Let's pray together. Father God, I, I pray for my brothers and my sisters that are standing here. No matter what their role is, it's important to you, God. Think about a school year, everything that could happen, everything that, that might happen. God, we just give all of that over to you, and we acknowledge that you are sovereign. And so for the teachers, the administrators, the staff, and the students here, God, we commission them in Jesus' name where they have a deep mission and deep love for everyone they encounter this year. God, I pray that you would do amazing things through our schools and through the lives of those that are standing. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you have a great weekend. Go in Jesus' name.